This is WexCast, the podcast series from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. I'm Melissa Starker, PR and Content Manager for the Wex. On view through August 12th and only at the Wex, Inherent Structure features an exceptionally talented group of 16 visual artists exploring the possibilities that abstraction presents in the realms of imagery, material, and meaning. Among them is Rebecca Morris, a Los Angeles-based painter whose colorful works evoke a sense of multi-layered space on a flat picture plane. For a 2006 exhibition of her work in Berlin, Rebecca also created the Manifesto for Abstractionists and Friends of the Non-Objective, a set of rules for pursuing abstract art published in Art Forum in 2006 as an ad for the show. For this WexCast, curatorial assistant Marissa Espy talks by phone with Rebecca about the Manifesto. They also cover some of her influences, the experience of seeing her work installed for the first time in our iconic grid-mapped building, and the artist's reflections on the power of color to evoke memories and associations. Let's listen. I wanted to start today's conversation by actually reading a couple of lines from your 2006 manifesto for abstractionists and friends of the non-objective, if that's okay with you. Sure. I just wanted to pull out some of these lines because really the way that you describe painting here and abstraction within your manifesto, I think it's just such a lovely tie to your paintings as well. So just to read a couple of this, and this was published in Art Forum in 2006 in conjunction yeah. with your exhibition at Gallery Barbo Weiss. It was, and I should say that I wrote it in 2004, 2005, and then that it was published and first seen in the, in 2006. In 2006. Okay, so here we go. Be a force. Don't shoot blanks. Don't pretend you don't work hard. When in doubt, spray paint it gold. Never stop looking at macrame, ceramics, supergraphics, and suprematism. Whip out the masterpieces. Abstraction never left motherfuckers. Strive for deeper structure. Campaign against the literal. Abstraction forever. And I am sure that you've talked about the manifesto many times, but I think what I'm most interested in hearing is how the process of writing ties into your painting practice. And if you consider yourself a writer and if that is independent actually from your artistic practice. I think it's kind of independent. I don't really consider myself a writer. Um, I mean, I wrote that manifesto and it makes me happy that it still feels relevant and resonant with me and with other people after, you know, basically 10 years. Definitely. Um, I don't have anything I want to change about it or correct or revise <laughs> um, or even add to. I think it's pretty complete. Um, but in lieu of that, I haven't really written much since then. I've written a few things here and there when asked but I don't regularly write in that way in terms of I'm writing a piece that I imagine would go out into the world in some way. 
Um, I do write very regularly in a journal. um, And I have for, I mean, my mom recently gave me a journal I was keeping in fifth grade. Um, No kidding. So I've been doing it for a very, very long time. And I so love that she held on to that. <laughs> my mom is actually a very good mother in this way. She's held on to every <laughs> drawing and my grandparents as well. They've really wow. been wonderful archivists. And I am a kind of major archivist, which is, I think, partly when you were telling, you know, when you were just introducing the manifesto, you said 2006. And the archivist in me is like, well, actually, it's 2004. It's good to know and good to have that on record. <laughs> yeah. So this, there is a there is a, a daily practice of writing that I'm interested in, and uh, uh, it's helpful to myself. It's helpful to remember things, and it's another way to think that it can be helpful. All of that said, I I can't say I've done something recently that felt as powerful as the manifesto in a sense. I mean, that was written on my own, not prompted, not for a request by somebody to do something. So, but I do think any kind of other auxiliary way of thinking about what I'm doing is helpful because you're just coming at things from different angles. Uh, So writing is one of those things. Absolutely. As, as is reading, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I'm not saying anything really earth shattering here. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's good to hear that. And especially that, the inspiration for writing was self-determined. Yeah, yeah, it was. I had been kind of keeping a list of things that were not so much a mantra. I've used that word before, but that's not really as accurate as I could be. It was a kind of list of things to keep myself going, points to recurrently be aware of, a big list maker. So the manifesto kind of started as a list, and I realized it had a statement feeling to it. And I think at one point I joked I was writing a manifesto. And then when I decided that it was truly a manifesto, other things started being added into it. And uh, the tone was always a sort of bigger voice than my own, right? Because when you need inspiration or to be set back on track, you need that authoritative voice. And the all all caps which didn't come across in the reading of it, um, in my reciting of it, but in the reading, you see it, be a force, all caps. Right. And it starts, and I mean, I think that's important. If you see the whole manifesto printed out, it starts with be a force in all caps, and it ends with abstraction forever in all caps. And that's very important. And it's a framic device to blockade and strengthen the interior statements. I mean, they're already pretty strong, but it's another way to uh, buttress the text inside. Um, So that was important, that capitalization on both. And I did play with the order of things. There was a little tinkering Mm -hmm. when I had all the lines worked out. When you mentioned tone, I was also thinking about that and how it comes across when you're reading it. It's playful and funny at some points but it comes from such a point of view, maybe despite the bigger voice, the authoritarian voice. Um, It's very provocative. And I feel like to your point of not returning to it, not wanting to change it or add anything to it, uh, there is this 
deliberateness to it. And you get that as a reader as well. That's great. One thing that was really important to me when I wrote it was there's never a mention to the material of painting in the manifesto. People refer to it as a painting manifesto because I'm a painter, but I specifically wrote it to be open so that there is no mention. I mean, I say spray paint it gold, but I don't say what I say it. That's true. And that was very important. Um, and there's no reference to painting outside of that. I mean, there's reference to art and then you're making something, but that was really important to me. It was, it's really about, uh, abstraction and it feeling like, uh, at that moment in time, it was, uh, outmoded or was coming with a lot of baggage that I wasn't accepting. And at the same time, so knowing that original context, you know, for 12, 14 years ago, and then reading it today, there's something that abstraction keeps grabbing onto and letting go of baggage, and that keeps fluctuating over and over. But now it seems like abstract painting, it's okay, at least for the moment. Um, Hmm. But in a way, this manifesto, it almost makes it accessible. It's almost like for maybe the viewer who looks at an abstract sculpture or painting or photograph and sees that and possibly feels alienated by it, they can read your manifesto and feel like they're not, you know, being laughed at or scoffed at, but instead you have this kind, funny, almost familiar voice sort of walking you through it. It's really nice in so many ways. Yeah, I think I am very aware of abstractions, potential to alienate people, I mean, the general public. I mean, truly, we live with abstraction all the time. We've already accepted abstraction, um, but there's a kind of rejection as if you need to know something else. And I've always thought that what's so great about art, and again, this is not a really deep idea, but is that you can come to it and have your own experience with it. And Definitely. I, and I think that's really important. And, you know, something I'm interested in with abstraction is that it's a way to even be more open, but... That's that's hard. It's hard to be open. And I think it's hard for people to be open-minded. It's hard to remain open. And it's hard to commit to building a relationship with something you may not like at first, visually. you know. But I, I find the things that I haven't liked immediately are usually some of the things that stick with me longer. Exactly. So um, I guess to that point... Um, Would you mind talking a little bit about your move to abstraction? Because I've read that your early training was very classical and not non-objective at the beginning and how that transformed to the abstract. Yeah, I went to college at a liberal arts college with a good art department and a good museum, Smith College. And I had wonderful professors, um, and I got a great foundation. And I had already been taking a lot of art classes, et cetera, as a high schooler and before that. So I was well-primed. But I didn't go to art school, so there were still a lot of things I just wasn't exposed to. And 
I was a realist painter and I really enjoyed that and I loved painting. I was also doing in undergrad photography at the same time and at one point was kind of wondering which I was going to do more of, photography or painting. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think I just loved the activity of painting as a process, whereas the process of photography, there wasn't enough of a creative, you know, of course there's a hugely creative art making, but there's also a lot of sort of grunt work lab work, right? dark room work. And that, you know, wasn't ultimately where I wanted to be spending my time. Like I wanted to be in the creation mode most of the time. I mean, this is what I think looking back on it now. Um, it was a very natural choice that I don't even think felt like a choice in the moment. But then I went to art school and I was catching up just understanding what it meant to make a painting and how to make a painting and what was happening in painting at that very moment, not, right. you know, in 1964. And I had a lot of experience going to New York. I grew up in Connecticut. My grandparents lived in Yonkers and then Manhattan. And so I was always going into the city and seeing contemporary art, but mainly in museums, not so much galleries. So Graduate school was a time of catching up, and as I was catching up, I was realizing that the language I was using, which was representation, was not satisfying and wasn't my language, Mm -hmm. wasn't the destined way that I wanted to speak as a painter. And I really didn't understand how to make an abstract painting or even realize that that was the best sort of language for me. So I spent that's basically what I spent graduate school doing is figuring out how to make a painting that was mine and what that meant. Uh, and I realized through a variety of experiences that when I made a painting without an image and that was not about rendering and that I could use the paint in a very free and open way that was determined by my whims and desires and not by illustrating something that already existed, mm-hmm. that was where the joy and the freedom was. And once I kind of tapped into that, it was just like an immediate huge relief and propulsion. Um, uh, And it was a pretty dramatic change of feeling. I mean, I spent graduate school like kind of freaked out, (laughs) feeling completely inadequate and like the worst person there. It was very difficult. But seeing the work of Mary Heilman was huge. Seeing the work of Robert Ryman was huge. Seeing this constructivist book exhibition at MoMA was huge. And um, Moira Dreyer's work, seeing that for the first time and learning about her work in, this is all in like the early nineties. These were huge things. And I'd say like all of these people, not the Russian constructivists, but you know, Ryman, Moira Dreyer and Mary Heilman, they all had this kind of ease and acceptance of materials without fussiness and, way that was trusting and casual and loose and themselves and that was so helpful to see that in Ryman's work especially when I saw his show I think it was also at MoMA he had a a survey show seeing that exhibition I was just like oh my god that's an abstract painting it's that easy you know it's that (laughs) straightforward it's that uncomplicated somehow I had been overthinking it just made me realize I had been overthinking everything and once I hit that 
it was just like, boom, a huge paradigm shift. Another show that was really important that was not a painter was the Fred Sandback show at Dia when mm-hmm. it was in Chelsea. Big warehouse building, and Fred Sandback had an entire floor with these, you know, his classic string and yarn pieces set up. And I remember walking into the floor and immediately just seeing how his work sliced the invisible space of the umpteen amount of empty square footage and immediately became aware of the invisibility and presence of space and how you can carve it out in the most minimal and extraordinary and reserved and pulled back lightest touch possible way. And I was completely blown away by the efficiency and the beauty and the delicacy and the just the miraculous way that he sliced the room. So this is another thing that just, when I look back at it, I see this is, these are my interests, you know, seeing how you can carve and reconfigure and reimagine and reshuffle space for a viewer. And this is something that I think about all the time and I'm deeply concerned with in my own way and completely different than Fred Sandback's work. But Uh, that was a real touchstone moment. And people often in studio visits ask me like, who are the painters you really like? And I'm always like, ask me who the artists I like are. Exactly. (laughs) Like like this idea that painting is somehow in this ghetto and that painters only like other painters. (laughs) I mean, my, my, my love of art, I have to say, like, I love sculpture because so much of it has to deal with space and dealing with spatial relationships and the body in relation to the piece and the changing nature of the body in relation to the sculpture and you know it's just and then how sculpture relates to architecture and I think painting has this potential to relate to architecture in so many fascinating ways and you definitely see it you know return to your work so as a looking revisiting the works that are up in inherent structure right now there's this wonderful thing that goes on where you stand in front of one of your paintings and there are these paintings within paintings and all of the complicated, nuanced activities you were describing about Fred Sandback's space or Robert Ryman's space. There's this psychic space where you're going sort of deeper and deeper into these unfolding interiors into a single painting. It's really incredible. There's just so much movement happening and I like the that you use the term shuffle because I feel like that's happening even, even just for mm. a viewer. It's been a delight to have these in the galleries, really. Thanks. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, the space is, is pretty spectacular at the Wexner. I'm really excited to be in that building. And I have to be honest, I just want to be in that building more. Right. <laughs> just like that that crazy triangular room <laughs> yes. where you enter the, you, you enter the point of the triangle with this sort of hidden stairway, the tiny stairs. I, yeah. It's just, there's, there's ridiculousness to it. And yeah, no, it's, it's a crazy space. And I remember with the night I got, the show was already installed and I arrived off the plane and met Michael there and walked through the show at like, you know, 6 PM or seven o'clock. It was my first time seeing the building and seeing those grates running along (laughs) the floor line everywhere. 
none of the work I had in the show was made for the space. It was all made before and came in from other exhibitions. So that even adds another layer that it's completely autonomous. And you have this one autonomous thing dealing with this other very defiantly autonomous thing. <laughs> you have to make it crash together. And yeah, I thought it was really exciting to, to see that. There's one, I have one wall with a painting with a grate on it and it's yes. the biggest painting. So it it's is kind of difficult because the, it has to go higher on the wall to accommodate the grate. And then you have like the biggest painting going even higher. It's <laughs> so bad. It's a terrible problem. And it did really bug me and I was worried about it, but the grate looks so good with the painting. They figure themselves out the architecture and the painting. Even the relation to one painting with mostly dark background and in the center, there's a shape that's sort of like stairs and there are just this Mm -hmm. isolated shape. And of course, just over on the other side of the room, there are Eisenman's ridiculous stairs that lead to nowhere. Yeah, I know. I, I, I have to tell you, I was like, fuck, I wish I had gotten here a few days earlier just to see what that painting looked like on that wall. Oh, yeah. You know, like, yes. You know, like, what would it have been to have that shape next to that shape? But yeah, sorry, continue. (laughs) (laughs) I also want to think about the particular hang and groupings of your works. Um, I read somewhere just a really, really lovely analogy where someone was describing the groupings of your works as associative neighborhoods which I love, just the collection of works together in a room, you know, yours and including Ruth Roots in the same gallery as well, how these neighborhoods, you know, they're they're works that have to exist if we're following the analogy within the same zip code. Of course, they're their own discrete, individual, unique entities that jive in this way that is like a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. That is a nice description. I haven't heard that. Yeah, it is. It's just a tricky thing to figure out how to hang work together, my work together. It, it's not hard, actually. I mean, from my point of view, it either works or it doesn't. It's yes or no. So it's just a matter of getting all the yeses lined up. There are paintings that are more iterative to each other but I tend not to like seeing those works all together. I don't think it makes the work hum in the right kind of way. So I guess another way to say it is that there's so much contrast internally within a painting that to then create that same kind of contrast externally between the works when they're grouped together is another way to continue that. So I think when there's so much contrast within the work and then you put another work up that has the same kind of internal contrast and you put them next to each other, they kind of wilt. And I like doing this with scale or proportion. Mm -hmm. Scale by meaning the size of the painting. Proportion meaning the kind of nature of the rectangle or the shape. You know, is it tall and skinny? Is it fat? Is it horizontal? Is it all this stuff becomes really important. And the pairing with Ruth is, is... great. I mean, we've known each other and are friends for a very long time. So that's just rewarding to be together in this Definitely. way. I admire her work very much. One phrase that keeps 
recurring in my mind when I'm thinking about your five paintings together in the room in the exhibition is this phrase going together and how it's exactly what you've just described where it's not these sort of matching iterative works that are all tidally associated together, but they go together in a way that has just a lot more, you know, friction between them. And clearly you have that dialed in, especially if it's a yes and a no. (laughs) (laughs) And another thing I wanted to talk about was color, just the sensitivity with which you use color, put colors together, handle color. I'm even thinking about, for your exhibition at the Renaissance Society, the chart of browns, which is such an amazing thing to look at. Could you describe the brown chart, that process, what that is? Yes. And what that was, was a uh, canvas board I had, and I been using brown. You know, a lot of times when you use brown paint, you use it as uh, not as the subject color. And there was a still, I mean, in that, that painting you described that is dark with the staircase shape inside, that yes. is a brown painting. That whole exterior washiness between the picture plane edge and the internal staircase shape, that's all very dark brown paint. So I've been interested in the color brown for a really long time. And so I would buy like every kind of brown paint you could buy. And they differ by brands. So, you know, like a raw umber by Williamsburg is a different looking brown than a raw umber by Old Holland and Lucini and Gamblin. So what I did is I just made a chart and I just washed out a little of each brown so I could see what it looked like straight out of the tube just as a color chart instead of putting it like on the exterior of the tube I wanted to see them all together in one place so that I could really so it was just a tool like oh okay well which brown do I want to use oh I want to take that brown and it needs to be that that brown meaning not just that brown that color it needs brown that brand so that's how I made that and I, I keep making these painting charts now I do it less to see the true color out of the tube and more like if I mix a color that's sort of wacko and interesting that I want to remember how I mixed it, I smear paint a little on a canvas board and then sort of write in Sharpie how I got there, like the colors in there so I could go back and get it again. I mean, I'm really good, so I could just look at the color and mix it again, but if I've just made it, why not just write? Yeah, maybe that's the archivist in you again. Yes, it absolutely is. (laughs) So I have all these other color charts after that brown one, but that brown one was probably one of the first ones. And we used it for the poster for the show because it just seemed like such a, a cool idea to use, you know, when you're a painter and you're a very studio based artist, meaning like your studio is the point of creation and everything in there is sort of part of the making or part of the decision-making process. There's the things you chose to make. There are the things you've chosen against. Everything in there is part of the process. So this was a way to use a part of the process that wasn't as direct as just putting a painting, a picture of the painting on the poster for the show. So it was a way to talk about maybe how the paintings are made or an inside view into the studio practice. 
So that's sort of the background on that color chart you're referring to. It was just a, a way for me to see all the browns. And I think there's some grays. And there's even maybe some spray paint tests in there, too. Mm-hmm. There are. Correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And also on color, I wanted to ask you about the Mauve Club, this club that you started yeah. in high school. And I wanted to know if this is, you know, an appreciation group. What were the criteria for membership to the Mauve Club? The Mauve Club, well, <laughs> it's hard to know where to start. It's pretty, <laughs> it's, it's pretty stupid. Uh, it doesn't sound I, stupid. It sounds really cool. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> there should, I mean, um, there should be a national mauve club. I didn't know anything about the history of the color until I was preparing for this and the fact that yes, it was the first. Yes, there's a whole book on mauve. Yeah. Did you discover that there's a whole book on mauve? Yes, yeah. it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the way to talk about the mauve club is to say the following first and then go back to the mauve club. First, I should say that I completely forgot about the mauve club. <laughs> and <laughs> so I was doing a conversation interview with Kate McNamara for my show at 356. And we were talking about color and I was describing something that was happening at this point in the work. And I'd say this had been going on like 2010, 2015. I had been using, been really trying to, I was after this particular shade of pink and it wasn't super narrow, but it had a kind of parameter to it. And the pink is very specific. And I kept finding myself describing it. It took so much effort to describe this pink because I couldn't think of what the pink was. It suddenly dawned on me that this pink has a name and it's called mauve. Yes. And it's this corpse-like, dead, ugly, beautiful, fleshy, rank, uh, off pinky purple with a cast of stale to it. And when I realized that the color had the name mauve, it was like, oh my God, it's mauve. I suddenly remembered my club that I had had <laughs> junior year of high school. And it was like, oh my God, I have been thinking about the color mauve for a really long time, much longer than I realized. And this kind of goes back to that we were talking earlier, I know it's not in this recording, about the master narrative. This is an example of how the master narrative fails because, like, I'm realizing, oh, my God, this weird pink shade has been of interest to me. So the Moth Club was this club that I had with a friend of mine. I went to this high school for one year in Connecticut called Hamden Hall, and it was a miserable year of school. I hated it. I was there for one year. It's very hard to transfer into high school as a junior. Right. And I was very unhappy and I left after that year and I took the bus to school, um, which I mean, you're 11th grader and you're taking the bus, right? That's just kind of a bummer right there. So (laughs) I was on the bus and there were all the people from, it was in Hamden, Connecticut. I lived in Brantford, which is outside and uh, all the other kids who kind of like lived in Brantford or in these coastal Connecticut towns that needed to get to Hamden, we'd all take the bus together. So there was this guy, JR, who was in 10th grade and we would sit on the bus together and he was super funny and playful. So we would just, you know, we made up this club. It was actually called the Mob Association. Wow. And yeah. And we made cards 
to be a member. And it was just like four people on the bus. <laughs> and the cards were for mica countertop color chips. Oh, which that's are incredible. Back in the day were shaped like a business card shape with a radiated corner. And so we had the color mauves, the countertop color mauve. I don't know how we got them because we got to the hardware store or something. And we had like, you know, five of these chips. And then JR printed out on the early Mac computer, Mob <laughs> Association. It might have said, I can't remember, Mob Association of America or the Mob Association. And then it said your name on it. And the font was that early Mac. And I'm not sure what the font was called now, but the closest thing to it now is, I think, the Chicago font. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were the cards. And I remember I made a few and I made a few for close friends of mine. And there were probably only like seven people who were in the mob club. We never met, but we would just talk about the mob club. <laughs> it's like a fictional thing that we knew was fictional. We were like, oh, yes, we're going to have that. Oh, how's, how's your Sunday? Let's meet on Sunday to talk about the mob and then never meet (laughs) never meet it was all administration it was like all about planning the meetings it was all about having the cards made it was all about the the spirit of the club which was very just playful and we had one other thing that was very important was that you couldn't say the word mauve like i'm saying it you were supposed to say mauve 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 you had to say mauve anyway as a founding member (laughs) you can see i'm a real failure (laughs) <laughs> I've now referred to the club as the Mob Club of America. I've kind of misremembered the name, and then also I'm calling it Mob. But in any case, that was the club. And when I was having this conversation with Kate McNamara and suddenly remembered the club, it was 2015, and I then decided that I was going to reopen the club. And it was on the precipice of six. South Mission, and that was what the conversation I was having. Kate and I were doing the interview for the press release of that show. So I decided that I was going to make Mauve Club of America cards for everybody who helped me with the show. So, you know, everybody at 356, people who were, were you know, were in the Mauve Club back in whatever year that was, 1985, <laughs> remade them cards for, you know, the install crew at 356. And uh, I recently made a card for Amy Stillman because she's like, I have mob sneakers. I love mob too. Perfect. And I was like, of course. <laughs> um, and the cards I couldn't use Formica because Formica chips, I don't even know if they're making mob anymore. And I tried to track it down to do it the exact same way, but I couldn't. So I went to Home Depot and got uh, samples, you know, the paint chip samples in mobs, and then, you know, printed out in the Chicago font tried to replicate what the card looked like and then went to Kinko's and laminated these cards. And that kind of was the resurrection of the mob club. And then since then, you know, it's like an ongoing joke with people who know about the mob club. Like if I see something that's mob, I'll like post it on Instagram. I was just in Maine last week and my family were just like driving around South Freeport and we go down this, dead end street and suddenly there's this ridiculous fantastic tower of a beach house that's like four stories high and super narrow it's like a turret and it's wood and it's painted mauve no kidding 
my whole family gets out of the car and we're like, what? <laughs> what is this crazy house? And my sister's like, it's the Moth Club of Maine, you know. And it so, is. <laughs> it's, yes, it's the Moth Club of Maine. And then I'll see different funny buildings with weird purples or pinks on them. And I'll make a joke like, you know, Mob Club of Vermont or (laughs) (laughs) that's sort of where the Mob Club is now. It's really just an ongoing kind of joke, but, you know, it's very tender. (laughs) It's very serious. Yeah, it is. I mean, it kind of is serious because it it points to seeing, you know, once you see this color, when you see colors out in the world and especially unique colors like mauve, you know, you pay attention and I, you know, you wonder what are they thinking, you know, to paint your entire house mauve. That's really this incredible commitment to a color. Yeah, I know. I feel like I need to send a club card to this address. (laughs) Just feel like you guys are honorary members. You're living it large. I mean, the thing about mauve and, and certain these kinds of shades of, I'm thinking about these awkward pink colors, it's like mauve is a pink that lost its freshness. Um, and this is a color that is, is a very provocative color. It's very disagreeable. People have very strong opinions about it. They really there's, do. There's, a, there's an interior decorator, I'm forgetting her name at the moment, and she said something about mauve being awful. And Diana Vreeland, who has wonderful things to say about color, mm-hmm. she was an editor at Vogue for many years and then was a curator at the Costume Institute at the Met. So I forget what she says, but something about how a mauve dining room would be disgusting and no one would want to eat in there. Diana said that? that? Diana said that or this woman. One of these women made this disparaging comment about mauve. And, you know, it's a deal breaker color for certain people who are even really into color. And so my interest in it is all of that. And to paint a house mauve in a beautiful landscape like Maine, like as you said, (laughs) is a real statement. You know, the other houses are really trying to be traditional and be adhering to the the natural landscape. And this right. house is really doing something jarring and personal, both with the architecture and its color. So I think the color mob is very, very charged. Lots of colors are charged. That's sort of been one that I'm really, really interested in recently. But there are other ones, too, like... Red, I think, is very charged, but for completely different reasons. So, Definitely. I think, so back to the back to the question of like my concerns in color. I'm really interested in color and color on its own, but also associative color. That blue next to that green next to this brown next to that gray. Like, there's content in that. It's not maybe narrative content, but it's content and yeah. information. Just the arranging and pairing this green and this brown versus that blue and this brown and how completely relative it is and how it changes so much according to how they're placed. And that's one of the really gratifying things about looking at your paintings as you see all those shifts um, because you provide so many opportunities to see those color arrangements in different and even really surprising ways. I like your word information better than content. That's a better word. It, it is information, uh, definitely. It is, and it's infor- informative. It is information, and it's, 
Yeah, and it's information. And what I like about the word information is it's neutral. You decide what you do with it. It could be content. It could be not content. It's information. News you can use. It's information. Yeah. <laughs> it's up to you. It's up to you to decide how you use that information. So I, I like that. One of the last things I wanted to touch upon, and I accidentally said this when I was talking about the Mauve House, was the commitment to Mauve. But the word commitment, I feel like just in reading about painting, in preparing for the show, in just thinking about abstract painting, I think it's part of this that we were touching upon earlier about the baggage of abstract painting. But why is it that it's always a commitment to abstraction? Why is that word? No. What does that mean? Like you must be faithful to abstraction. It's become almost a trope. I feel like I, you just see it everywhere. It's a commitment. Yeah, I know. And, and ultimately I don't agree with that idea or ideology. And I've said this and then I've had people say, well, you're the one who made an abstract manifesto. <laughs> but I mean, the reason I was wrote it wasn't to say or to state that abstract painting was a priority. Right. That wasn't the point. It was just to say there's material here and you can't just discount something because of a style. You know, that's ridiculous. And ultimately, I don't think at the end of the day, it's not that interesting to dissect painting according to landscape or seascape. Exactly. Figurative or abstraction. You know, anybody who's making any of those, quote, categories is dealing with the same issues. We're all dealing with the same problems and the same history, whatever, quote, category we're working in. My gripe, or not my gripe, but my impetus for being so pointed in the manifesto was because it was, in my experience at that time, being discounted simply because it was abstract in style, you know, which I thought was ludicrous and still think is ludicrous. So I just have a commitment to painting. Absolutely. And And who knows, you know, I can think of so many incredible examples of this, but one just like basic example that more people will know is Philip Gustin. Luminous career as an abstract painter. And then at the end of his career, he goes back to figuration, Mm -hmm. where kind of where he started as a muralist. And he goes back to, you know, painting the world and people and objects. And he got a lot of flack for that, but it's kind of about, making these lines in the sand about style and mode of painting. What I want to say about Philip Gustin is he is an example of someone who changed style. And I don't want to feel like I can't change style if I want to. Exactly. Nor should anybody. So delineating these ideas about, you know, abstraction or figuration within the realm of painting isn't really where my interests are. Just going back to this commitment to abstraction, I have a commitment to painting. Yes. It's just one of those funny, funny tropes about critics writing specifically about abstraction. I think that that is... Well, it's undermining abstraction. Exactly. What they're doing is they're simultaneously still undermining (laughs) abstraction in the way that my manifesto is trying to say, all points alert, you know, so it's this 
subliminal use of language. It is. I think that is exactly what it's pointing to, this commitment. You, you said they're still, because that's what that word I feel like implies. And like this idea of a commitment to abstraction, like you need to be buttressed up against all the opposition. Exactly. And I'm just you know, I'm not sure who the opposition is exactly. Well, if I can, I wanted to end with a quote from an interview that you did back in 2012. It really struck a chord with me as I was reading it. It says, I want my work to be a dynamic presence to create visual and physical impact in a space. In general, I found that people respond to my work over time. So the highest compliment would be if someone wanted to spend lengthy and repeated time with my work. And I just wanted to say that, you know, we've had the privilege of having your paintings in the current exhibition, Inherent Structure, that I've been able to return to your works over and over again, and that they don't require it, but you are rewarded for those repeat visits to your paintings. And I just feel really lucky that we get to show them. That's really kind. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks so much for talking for this podcast. Thanks for asking me. Of course. <laughs>